I would like to welcome everybody to the Hebraic Heritage Ministries Yeshiva Discipleship Program. In this session, we're going to be doing a teaching on the new moon, which in Hebrew is Rosh Hodesh. And two of the major themes of Rosh Hodesh, or the new moon, is it teaches us about rebirth and restoration. The new moon is actually a biblical festival. Why do we celebrate the new moon, and what is the understanding behind it? Rosh Hodesh, or the celebration of the new moon, was the first commandment given by the nation of Israel when they were redeemed from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it is written, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month, that is Aviv, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. What month is he referring to? Exodus chapter 13, verse 4. This day came you out in the month Aviv. Aviv is the biblical name for the month. The name that is also given for the month which is of Babylonian origin is Nisan. The biblical calendar is a lunar based calendar. How can we understand that? Looking at Exodus chapter 12 verse 2 it says this month which is the Strong's number 2320 it's the Hebrew word Hodesh which is the word that means new moon. The word can mean new moon, it can mean month. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. Same word, Hodesh, and it shall be the first month, Hodesh, of the year to you. In First Samuel chapter 20, verse 5, it says, And David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. That's the Strong's number 2320. Notice the Strong's number 2320, Hodesh, which means new moon or month, is translated in the King James in Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, and 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 5, in a variety of ways. It's translated as this month, the beginning of months, the first month, and the new moon. The biblical months are lunar. However, the biblical year is solar. If we look at Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah is a compilation work of Moses Maimonides who lived during the Middle Ages. And what he did is he made an effort to take all of Jewish law, that is rabbinical Jewish law, and bring it together in one document which became known as Mishnah Torah and categorize the various laws and to summarize what is said about those various laws. So this work that was brought together by Moses Maimonides, who was also known as Rambam, is referred to as Mishnah Torah. In Mishnah Torah in Chilhot Kadesh, HaKodesh, which is the laws regarding the sanctification of the moon. In chapter 1, section 1, it is written, The months of the year are lunar months, as implied by Numbers chapter 28, verse 14. The burnt offering of the month when it is renewed. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 2, This month shall be to you the first of months. The biblical calendar is lunar, and what we have seen so far is that the nation of Israel was commanded by the God of Israel in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to set up a lunar calendar and to establish in this calendar the first month as being a Aviv, which happens in the spring of the year. The biblical court is to be in Jerusalem. We can see this from Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 8 and then in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 verse 6. If there arise a matter too hard for you in judgment, 
between blood and blood, between plea and plea, between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within your gates. In other words, a disagreement on how you follow Torah. This is what we're commanded to do. You will arise and get thee up unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose. What is this place? In Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6, we're told that the chosen place is Jerusalem. But I've chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there, and I've chosen David to be over my people Israel. Continuing on in Deuteronomy chapter 17, now reading verses 9 through 11, it says, And ye shall come unto the priest, the Levites, and it also says, Ye shall come unto the judge that will be in those days. This is an allusion or reference to the Messianic era. The judge is the Messiah who will be ruling and reigning, teaching Torah from Jerusalem in those days. The Messianic era is referred to as those days. And inquire. So what this is also telling us is during the Messianic era, when Messiah is here, there's still got to be issues that we have to go to him and say, how do we follow the Torah? And he will explain it to us. And they will show you the sentence of judgment. And ye shall do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose shall show you. And ye shall observe to do according to all that they inform you. According to the sentence of the law which they shall teach you. And according to the sentence which they shall tell you, you shall do. You shall not decline from the sentence which they shall show you to the right hand nor to the left. This is also made mention in Mishnah Torah and the laws for sanctifying the new moon. In chapter 1, verse 8, by Moses Maimonides, he explains that the declared establishment of the new moon, based upon what we just read and also from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, can only be done from Jerusalem. The calculations in the establishment of the months in the leap years is carried out only in the land of Israel, as implied by Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, which says, For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of God from Jerusalem. We need to understand in setting up this court, this judicial Torah-based court in Jerusalem, that there is also a heavenly court. In Daniel chapter 7 verses 9 and 10, it says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set before the Ancient of Days in his throne, and the books were open. So there is a heavenly court. And ultimately, the supreme court of the universe is the heavenly court, of which the earthly court is to mirror and to be in consistency with. Now let's look at, given the fact that the Torah does say that there's to be a judicial court set up and it's to be in Jerusalem, let's look at the details of how that gets carried out. Ultimately, we need to make a connection with the biblical Pharisees who today have become and have survived to be what we call rabbinic Judaism or orthodox Judaism. Let's see what Yeshua had to say about the Pharisees and let's look at their role and their place and the form of what became known as the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 11 and 12, it says, How is it that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of physical bread, the leaven of physical bread, but of the doctrine or the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're going to place particular focus on the doctrine of the Pharisees. What is their doctrine? They believe in Torah, teaching Torah. How do they teach you should follow Torah? That's their doctrine. Yeshua said, beware of their doctrine. 
the ancient Pharisees became rabbinic Judaism. And I'm going to now share with you from the Wikipedia Encyclopedia. The Pharisees from the Hebrew parashim, from parash, meaning to separate, were depending on the time a political party, a social movement, and a school of thought among Jews that flourished during the Second Temple era, which is regarded as 536 before the Common Era, to the year 70. After the destruction of the Second Temple, Pharisaic Judaism came to be known as Rabbinic Judaism, and then simply Judaism. The Pharisees were an ancient sect of Judaism. They existed during the time of rabbis Hillel the Elder and Shammai and during the time of Yeshua. They are the direct predecessor to what eventually became known as Rabbinic Judaism. Continuing on regarding the Pharisees and their connection to Rabbinic Judaism, from the Wikipedia Encyclopedia, it says, in contrast to other Jewish groups of the time, such as the Sadducees, Pharisees held that the books of the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, which can be referred to as the written scriptures, have always been transmitted in parallel with a oral tradition. They point as proof to the text of the Torah itself where they say many words were left undefined and many procedures mentioned without explanation or instruction. The reader is assumed to be familiar with the details from other sources. This parallel set of material was originally transmitted orally and came to be known as the oral law. By the year 200, much of this material was edited together, that which was supposedly taught orally, into what became known as the Mishnah, the core document of Rabbinic Judaism. Now, looking at the Talmud, the Mishnah is contained within the Talmud. In Berahot, chapter 19a, it says that you could be excommunicated for not washing your hands. Rabbi Joshua, son of Levi, further said, In 24 places we find that the Beit Din, which is the judicial court, inflicted excommunication for an insult to a teacher, and they are all recorded in the Mishnah. Rabbi Eliezer asked him, Where? He replied, See if you can find them. And he went and examined and found three cases. One of a scholar who threw contempt on the washing of the hands. In other words, he questioned it. Another of one who made derogatory remarks about scholars after their death. And a third of one who made himself too familiar towards heaven. Continuing on in Berahot 19a, it was Eliezer, son of Hanak, who raised doubts about washing the hands. And when he died, the Beit Din, the judicial court, sent and had a large stone placed on his coffin to teach you that if a man is excommunicated and dies in his excommunication, in other words, he didn't repent from questioning the washing of hands, the Beit Din, the rabbinical court, stone his coffin. The oral law therefore teaches that you must wash your hands before you eat. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 39. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him, that is Yeshua, to dine with him. And he went in, and he sat down to meet, or he sat down to eat. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. In other words, in his mind, he's not following the Torah. But actually, that is oral Torah. That's not written Torah. And the Lord said unto him, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup. In other words, you're washing externally, but inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. In other words, your heart is still sinful, but you're trying to be meticulous externally and saying, I'm keeping the commandments. Now, another thing to understand about rabbinical Judaism, because Messiah said, Beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees. Rabbinical Judaism teaches that their rulings are greater than even the voice of heaven. And this comes from the Talmud in Baba Metziah 59b. It has been taught, On that day Rabbi Eliezer brought forward every imaginable argument regarding an issue that they were debating, but they, meaning the other rabbis, did not accept his rationale and his arguments. Said he to them, 
That is Rabbi Eliezer saying to the, all the other rabbis, if the halakha, in other words, if the correct understanding of following Torah is agreeable to my position, let the carob tree prove it. Thereupon the carob tree was torn a hundred cubits out of its place. Others affirm 400 cubits. In other words, the carob tree did react and do it. And they replied to him, no proof can be brought from a carob tree. doesn't make any difference if the carob tree reacted. Again, he said to them, if the halakha agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Whereupon the stream of water flowed backwards. What they said, no proof can be brought from a stream of water. They rejoined. So the carob tree is showing that Rabbi Eliezer is right. The water is showing that he's right. But the rabbis say it doesn't make any difference. Again, he said to them, if the halakha agrees with me, let it be proof from heaven. Whereupon a heavenly voice cried out and said, Why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer, seeing that in all matters the halakha agrees with him? The heavenly voice says, Hey, Rabbi Eliezer's right. And then Rabbi Joshua rose and exclaimed, It, the interpretation of the Torah, is not in heaven. But what did he mean by this? said Rabbi Jeremiah, that the Torah had already been given at Mount Sinai. We already know everything that was said, both written and orally. We pay no attention to a heavenly voice because you have long since written in the Torah at Mount Sinai. And this is, their, once again, their interpretation. After the majority of rabbis, you must listen or accept their rulings. In other words, if the majority of the rabbis say it's this way, then it doesn't make any difference. What a heavenly voice says, you listen to the majority. So therefore, Rabbi Eliezer's opinion had no merit, even though it was all validated that it did have merit. Rabbinical Judaism teaches that when two rabbis have different opinions, that both opinions are to be regarded as having authority. In the Talmud, in Erevim 13b, it says, Rabbi Abba stated in the name of Samuel, for three years there was a dispute between Bet Shammai, the house of Shammai, and Beit Hillel, the two primary schools of the sects of Pharisaic. Judaism in the first century. The former asserting the halakha is in agreement with our views and the latter saying no, the halakha is in agreement with our views. Then a bat kol or a heavenly voice issued announcing the utterances of both are the words of the living God, but the halakha is in agreement with the rulings of Beit Hillel. In other words, they're saying that the heavenly voice said Hillel is right, but listen to both of them, even though one's wrong. They're saying that you need to listen to two different opinions even though they are different from each other. And one is incorrect. Yeshua referred to the leaven of the Pharisees is, among other things, hypocrisy. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they tread one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, they say you need to follow and do all these things, but they themselves don't do it. That's hypocrisy. Among the other things that Yeshua made mention of among the Pharisees is that they sought status among men. Luke chapter 11 verse 43, Woe unto you Pharisees, for you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. Now we need to understand the meaning of the phrase, the seat of Moses because this has got to relate to making judicial rulings regarding the Torah, which the Torah says is to be done from Jerusalem. In Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 16, we can see what the seed of Moses is referring to. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. Moses is sitting to judge the people. This is the seed of Moses. And the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. Why are they doing this? When Moses' father-in-law, that's Jethro, saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that you do to the people? Why do you sit yourself alone and all the people stand by you from morning unto evening? And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Jethro, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. In other words, how to follow the commandments of God. When they have a matter of how you follow the commandments, they come unto me and I judge between one another and I make them know the statutes of God in his Torah. So this is how you get the phrase Moses' seat is the people came to him to inquire. How do we follow the commandments? And Moses is acting as the judge and saying this is how you do it. 
Rabbinical Judaism teaches that they sit in the seat of Moses. In other words, they have the authority to make rulings that are to be followed according to the Torah given by the God of Israel. In the Talmud, in Rosh Hashanah 25a, it says, Rabbi Akiva went to Rabbi Joshua, and he said to him, I can bring proof from the scripture that whatever Rabban Gamaliel has done, and he was in charge of the rabbinical court and made various decisions, therefore, is valid. He, Rabbi Joshua, then went to Rabbi Dosa, son of Harkonnes, who said to him, If we call in question the decisions of the Beit Din or the rabbinical court of Rabban Gamaliel, in other words, if they at court made a decision and we question them, he says, we must call in question the decisions of every Beit Din, which has existed since the days of Moses up to the present time. For it says, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nabab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel. Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. In other words, what he's saying is, we can't question any ruling that has ever been made, because if we question the ruling, that invalidates our doctrine that everything has been faithfully transmitted from Moses. So we can't question what their ruling is. So they see that their rulings are the authentic rulings of how to follow the Torah, which means they're saying that they sit in the seat of Moses. Now let's look at a first century Torah controversy and see how it was resolved. In Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're given an interpretation of Torah. And they said, this is my understanding of Torah. Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Then it goes on, Wherefore, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, in other words, they were arguing the matter about what the Torah actually said, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Notice they were following Torah. The Torah says in Deuteronomy 17, if there's an issue of controversy, you go to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They went to Jerusalem. Did they go to inquire of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem? No, they went to inquire in Jerusalem of the apostles and elders who were believers in Yeshua the Messiah, and they accepted their rulings as following Deuteronomy chapter 17. So they went to Jerusalem according to Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 11. They did not inquire of the rabbinical Sanhedrin regarding this issue. They did inquire of the apostles and elders in Jerusalem who were followers of Yeshua the Messiah. So they didn't recognize as the Sanhedrin being the legitimate judicial court that Deuteronomy 17 referred to. Did Yeshua teach that you should follow the Pharisees, which means follow rabbinic Judaism or the interpretation of Orthodox Judaism? Well, initially, when you look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 3 in the English, that is on the surface what it appears to say. But if you cross-reference with these other things that we've been looking at, when he said, beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees, that the two don't link up with each other. So let's examine this more closely. In Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3, Then spake Yeshua to the multitude and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, sitting in Moses' seat means they are making judgments regarding the Torah. Were the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin doing that? Yes, they were. That's a statement of fact. They were doing that. Then, here's the verse in question. It says, All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe that you observe and do. Apparently he's saying that you should follow the Pharisees. But earlier he said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The two seems to be contradictory statements. Then he goes on to say, But do not after their works, for they say and do not. So he apparently is saying, Yes, follow what they rule, but don't do what they do. That's what it appears to be saying. But is that really how we need to understand what is being said there? in order to unravel what this is really saying, we need to go to a original source or a source that is based upon original publications. It is believed that the original Gospel of Matthew was written in Hebrew 
and it was preserved by a 14th century Spanish Jew named Shem Tov, Ibn Shaprut. There is a book published entitled The Gospel of Matthew According to a Primitive Hebrew Text by George Howard, which contains the text of the Shem Tov Hebrew Matthew. And this is referenced and made mentioned in the book, The Hebrew Yeshua versus the Greek Jesus by Nehemia Gordon on pages 37 and 38 of the book. Looking at the book, The Hebrew Yeshua versus the Greek Jesus by Nehemia Gordon. By the way, Nehemia Gordon is a Orthodox Jew that does not believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, and he personally questions the validity of following the rabbinical oral interpretations. In his book in chapter 8, he goes on to say regarding that in the King James translation in the Greek of Matthew in chapter 23 and verse 2, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. He's saying, yes, the King James appears to say this. The Greek text appears that that is what should be the meaning of the verse. But he says, if you look at that text in the Shem Tov Hebrew, that that is not really what it says. There is one letter in Hebrew that apparently the, the scribes or the translators missed the one letter which changed the meaning of the translation. First he gives what is shown as what it says in the Shem Tov Hebrew, which translates into English this understanding. The Pharisees and sages sit in the seat of Moses. Therefore, all that he says to you, that is Moses, whatever Moses tells you, diligently do. But according to their reforms, that is the interpretation of rabbinical Judaism, do not do because they talk, but they do not do. So in the Shem Tov, Hebrew Matthew, it says that Yeshua is saying, you're to do what Moses said, not according to the Pharisaic oral interpretation of all of how you follow the commandments. This is what happened in Acts chapter 15, and this is consistent with Yeshua not washing his hands when he's sitting with the Pharisees and said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Yeshua is going to be the judge over this judicial court during the Messianic era. In Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 it says, Many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In the first century, there was a Beit Din, which is referred to as the Sanhedrin, and they, in the first century, made determination and announcement of the new moon. Let's understand how they operated and did things for the sake of our learning. I'm reading from Mishnah Torah, chapter 1, page 60 of the laws concerning the sanctification of the moon by Moses Maimonides. The sanctification of the new month, by contrast, has been entrusted to the court. The new month does not begin until it has been sanctified by the court, and it is the day that they establish as the new moon. That is implied by the verse, this month shall be for you, i.e. the testimony concerning the new moon will be entrusted to you as they interpret it. How was this done? Maimonides explains in Mishnah Torah, the laws concerning the sanctification of the new moon, in chapter 1, section 3. The first night when the moon is sighted in the west after being hidden in the beginning of the month, afterward 29 days are counted from that day. If the moon is sighted on the night of the 30th, the 30th day will be Rosh Hodesh of the following month. If it is not sighted, Rosh Hodesh will be on the 31st day, and the 30th day will be included in the previous month. 
there is no need to sight the moon on the 31st night whether or not the moon is sighted the new moon begins that night for there are no lunar months longer than 30 days in other words if it hasn't been sighted after 30 days we can go on because that's the maximum amount of time that there is to determine the new moon from one month to the next month continuing on about how this was done in section 6 of chapter 1 the high court would make calculations in a manner resembling the calculations of the astronomers who know the location of the stars and their paths and their orbits. They would perform careful research to determine whether or not they would be able to sight the moon at the appropriate time, that is the 30th night. If the judges determined that it was possible to sight the new moon, they would sit waiting for witnesses to come and testify throughout the entire 30th day. If witnesses came and the court examined their testimony according to law and verified the truth of their statements, the court would sanctify the new month. If the new moon was not sighted and the witnesses did not come, they would complete the 30th day, thus making the month full. If according to their calculations the judges knew that it was impossible for the moon to be sighted, they would not sit in session on the 30th day, nor would they wait for the arrival of witnesses because their testimony thus would not be valid. If witnesses came, they would know that they were false witnesses or that if clouds appeared for them in a form resembling the moon, but it was not the real moon. The only testimony that is acceptable with regard to the sighting of the new moon is that of two adult males, and that is given in Mishnah Torah, the laws for sanctifying the new moon by Momamides, in chapter 2, page 64, chapter 2, section 1. What ultimately happened is that messengers were sent to distant places to announce that the new moon had been seen. This is specified for us in Mishnah Torah, Laws Concerning the Sanctification of the New Moon, in Chapter 3, Section 8. Originally, when the court would sanctify the new moon, they would light bonfires on the mountaintops to notify the people in distant places. When the Samaritans began conducting themselves in a debased manner and would light bonfires at the wrong times to confuse the people, the sages instituted the practice of having messengers journey to notify the people. In other words, the Samaritans were being mischievous and wanted to send a false communication to antagonize those in Jerusalem from the Sanhedrin. Now, in Mishnah Torah, the laws for sanctifying the new moon, chapter 1, section 7, Maimonides explains it's the duty of the Sanhedrin to sanctify the new moon. It is the positive commandment of the Torah for the court to calculate and determine whether or not the new moon will be sighted, to examine witnesses until the moon can be sanctified, and to send forth messengers to inform the remainder of the people on which day the new moon or Rosh Hodesh was observed so that they will know the day. Reviewing, how did the Sanhedrin determine the new moon? They would calculate when the new moon should come, so they would be in the right time frame of know when to expect a witness who would testify that they saw the new moon, and then they ultimately sent out messengers to inform the people that the new month had started. In Mishnah Torah, Laws for Sanctifying the New Moon, Chapter 1, Section 5, Maimonides explains that individuals cannot unilaterally declare the sighting of the new moon to establish the new moon. The establishment of Rosh Hodesh, the new moon, based on the sighting of the moon, is not the province of every individual, but the Sabbath is the province of every individual. And for the Sabbath, you're to understand and know when it is by counting six days and then resting on the following seventh day. The weekly Sabbath is mentioned as being every seven days. The weekly Sabbath is a remembrance of creation and redemption. We can see the connection that the weekly Sabbath is a remembrance of creation from Exodus chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. So the Sabbath is linked with four and six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath is linked to the seven days of creation and specifically the seventh day that the God of Israel rested. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, 
there's a connection of the Sabbath to the historical Egyptian redemption. And remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore, because he brought you out of Egypt, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The sun and the moon are given for signs and for seasons. Genesis chapter 1 verse 14 and 16. God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons. The word seasons is the Hebrew word moed, which means a set time, an appointed time. Let them be for appointed times, for days, and for years. And God made two great lights, the greater light, which is the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, which is the moon, to rule the night. And he made stars also. The moon was given to determine the festivals. We can see this from Psalm 104, verse 1, 5, and 19, which says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be moved forever. He appointed the moon for seasons. The word there is moed. He appointed the moon for appointed times. The sun knows his going down. In the Mishnah Torah, in the laws for sanctifying the new moon in chapter 2, section 10, Maimonides explains that the new moon determines the date of the annual festivals. He writes, We are required to calculate the dates of the festivals based on the day that they were sanctified as the beginning of the new month. Only the Sanhedrin can sanctify the new moon or establish leap years, as it says in Mishnah Torah for the loss for sanctifying the new moon in chapter 5, section 1. All the statements made previously regarding the prerogative to sanctify the new moon because of the sighting of the moon and to establish a leap year to reconcile the calendar or because of a necessity apply to the Sanhedrin in the land of Israel. For it is they alone or a court of judges possessing the qualifications to do so that hold sessions in Eretz Israel and that was granted authority by the Sanhedrin who may authorize these decisions. Ultimately, from the Sanhedrin that was in the first century, Hillel II was the last president of the Sanhedrin and during his days, Rome prevented the Sanhedrin from declaring the new moon. Therefore, in the fourth century, which is around the year 360, Hillel created a fixed mathematical calendar which is used today by the Jewish community. And I'm going to call this fixed calendar an exile calendar because it was just set up for exile. It's not meant to be a permanent or eternal calendar system structure. During the Messianic era, the Messiah will reestablish a biblical judicial court he has to be if he's ruling and reigning from jerusalem in isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 at that time the new moon will be declared as it says in scripture and it will be based upon visual sightings as in the days of old the reason why an exile calendar is used today is because there is no sanhedrin in jerusalem this is explained by Moses Maimonides in Mishnah Torah, chapter 5, verse 1, the laws for sanctifying the new moon. When, however, there is no Sanhedrin in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, we establish the monthly calendar and institute leap year solely according to the fixed calendar that is followed now. The new moon is not visually sighted with the exile calendar because what Hillel set up was a mathematical calculation. So if it's mathematically calculated, there is not a need to visually cite, which is what is explained or rendered by Moses Maimonides in chapter 5, section 2 of the Laws for Sanctifying the New Moon. When there is a Sanhedrin, the monthly calendar is established according to the visual sighting of the moon. When there is no Sanhedrin, the monthly calendar is established according to the fixed calendar that we follow now in the sighting of the moon that is the 
visual sighting is of no consequence. When the fixed calendar is followed, there are times when the day established as new moon will be the day on which the new moon actually does appear, and there are times when the sighting will either precede it or follow it by a day. So in other words, the fixed exile calendar is not 100% accurate on the appearance of the new moon. How does the lunar calendar get synchronized with the solar calendar? Because the solar year is longer than using a lunar calendar system. In the Mishnah Torah, in chapter 1, section 2, Naimamides explains how this is done using the exile calendar, the calculated calendar. How much longer is a solar year than a lunar year? Approximately 11 days. Therefore, to correct the discrepancy between the lunar and the solar calendars, when these additional days reach the sum of 30, or slightly more, slightly less, an additional month, a leap month, is added, causing the year to include 13 months when this happens. That, then, is called a full year. This is necessary because it's impossible to have a year with 12 months and an odd number of days, interpreting Numbers chapter 28, verse 14, speaking of months of the year. On this verse, the sages comment, you count the months of a year, but not the days of the year. So when you institute a leap month, the month that is instituted is Adar. So there's Adar 1 and Adar 2 in a year that has a leap month. And Mishnah Torah, the laws concerning the sanctification of the new moon, chapter 4, section 1, Maimonides explains, a leap year is a year that includes an additional month. The extra month that is added is always Adar, and thus the year contains two Adarim, the first Adar and the second Adar. Why is this month added? Because of the season of spring, so that Passover will fall then, as implied by Deuteronomy 16.1. Take heed the month of spring. This command can be interpreted to mean, take heed that this month falls in the spring season. Were the month of Adar not to be added from time to time, there are times if that wasn't done, when Passover would ultimately, in the course of time, fall in the summer, and at times, ultimately, when it would be in the fall. The exile calendar is a 19-year cyclical calendar. Maimonides explains this, Mishnah Torah, in chapter 6, sections 10 and 11. The fixed calendar is structured in a 19-year cycle, including seven leap years and 12 ordinary years. Thus, in such a 19-year cycle, the months are lunar months in the years or solar years. The seven leap years in each cycle should be the following, 3, 6, 8, 11, 14, 17, and 19. So how do the rabbis teach that we are to celebrate the new moon? They rule. Individuals cannot unilaterally declare the new moon without the authority of the Sanhedrin. The determination of the new moon establishes when the annual festivals will be observed. The weekly Sabbath is every seven days. Hillel II in the 4th century established an exile calendar which will be used until the Messianic era. Once the Messianic era comes, then that calendar will no longer be used. And we as believers in the Messiah understand that Messiah will establish a biblical judicial court which will declare the new moon according to Torah in the days of old. Now, let's look at the new moon and the celebration of the new moon in the scriptures. We see that what's associated with new moon is there are offerings that are made in the temple. Numbers chapter 28, verses 11 through 13 says, And in the beginning of your months you shall offer a burnt offering unto the Lord, two young bullocks and one ram, seven lambs of the first year without spot and three-tenths deals of flour for a meat offering mingled with oil, for one bullock and two-tenths deals of flour for a meat offering mingled with oil for one ram, and a several-tenths deal of flour mingled with oil for a meat offering unto one lamb for a burnt offering of a sweet savor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord." Numbers 28 verses 14 and 15 and their drink offering shall be a half of a hen of wine unto a bullock and a third part of hen unto a ram and a fourth part of a hen unto a lamb this is the burnt offering of every month throughout the months of the year and one kid of the goats for a sin offering unto the Lord shall be offered beside the continual burnt offering and his drink offering David celebrated the new moon 
In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 18 and verse 24, it says, Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you shall be missed because your seat will be empty. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon was come, the king sat him down to eat meat. Ezra and Nehemiah celebrated the new moon upon the return from Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah chapter 10 verses 28 and 29 says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the Torah of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's Torah, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Master and his judgments and his statutes. We can see this still. Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. For the showbread and for the continual meat offering and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbath of the new moons, for the set feasts and for the holy things and for the sin offerings to make an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. The new moon will be celebrated during the Messianic era. We can see this from Ezekiel chapter 46, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 6. Thus says the Lord God, The gate of the inner court that looks toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbath and in the new moons. Ezekiel 46, verse 6. And in the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bullock without blemish, and six lambs and a ram, they shall be without blemish. The new moon will be celebrated during the time of the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 66, verses 22 and 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Lord. How is the new moon celebrated in the Bible? In the temple, various sacrifices are offered on the new moon. David celebrated new moon with a meal, although celebrating the new moon with a meal is not specifically mentioned in the first five books. The new moon will be celebrated during the Messianic era in the days of the new heaven and the new earth. Now we want to look at some scriptures of how the celebration of the new moon is linked with celebrating the Sabbath. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 23. And he said, Wherefore will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. In 1 Chronicles chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, and verse 31 it is written, For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from twenty years old and above, because their office was to wait on the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, in the courts and in the chambers, in the purifying of holy things, in the work of the service of the house of God, and to offer all burnt sacrifices unto the Lord in the Sabbath, in the new moon, and on the set feast by number, according to the order commanded unto them. Now let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, and see once again how when the Sabbath is mentioned, the new moon is mentioned along with it. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings unto the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the porch, even after a certain rate every day offered according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbath and on the new moons, and on the solemn feast three times in the year, even in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles. Second Chronicles chapter 31, verses 2 and 3. And Hezekiah appointed the courses of the priests and the Levites after their courses, every man according to his service, the priests and Levites for burnt offerings and for peace offerings, to minister and to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the tents of the Lord. He appointed also the king's portion of his substance for the burnt offerings, to wit, for the morning and evening burnt offerings, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbath, and for the new moons, and for the set feasts as it is written in the Torah of the Lord. 
We can further see, using some more scripture, how the mention of the new moon is linked with the celebrating of the Sabbath. In Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 16 and 17, which Ezekiel 45 is speaking about the Messianic era, all the people of the land shall give this oblation for the prince in Israel. And it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and drink offerings in the feasts, in the new moons, and in the Sabbaths. And all the solemnities of the house of Israel, he shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. And another scripture, Hosea chapter 2, verse 11, And I will cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moon, and her Sabbath, and all her solemn feasts. Amos implies that no selling should be done on new moon. In Amos chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, Hear this, O you that swallow up the needy, even to make poor of the land to fail, saying, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit? There is no such commandment in the first five books of the Bible but Amos implies that no selling is to be done on the new moon. Next, we want to see how Israel is likened to the moon and Israel is likened to the Davidic dynasty. Psalm 89, verse 20 and 29, and then through verse 32. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. His seed also will I make to endure forever. His throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my Torah and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with strife. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established, the seed of David, forever as the moon. The seed of David as the moon, and as a faithful witness in heaven... The Davidic dynasty arose, fell, and it's prophesied to be restored or renewed. The rise and fall of the Davidic dynasty is likened to the moon. David ruled over united Israel and Zion. In the days of Solomon, the tribes of Israel were divided. Eventually, the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken captive to Assyria, and the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken captive to Babylon. There were 15 generations from Abraham, which has got to represent the birth of the nation or the new moon, to Solomon, which represents the fullness of the reign of Abraham's seed in the earth up through that time. So Solomon's reign has got to represent 15 generations or the full moon. From Solomon, the full moon, to Zedekiah, the last king of the house of Judah, when the temple was destroyed, was 15 generations concluding the waning cycle of the moon. At this point, with Zedekiah, the tabernacle of David had fallen. However, through King Messiah, the fallen tabernacle of David will rise again, and Yeshua will rule and reign over the united house of David during the Messianic era. We can see this from the prayer book of Orthodox Judaism, the Siddur. It says, regarding the new moon... The second aspect of our prayer and its significance for the history of Israel, just as the moon is reborn after a period of decline and total disappearance, so too Israel's decline will end and its light will once again blaze to fullness. As an example, the Midrash in Shemot Rabbah 15 states, when Israel is worthy of God's favor, it is like the waxing moon. But when it's not worthy, it's like the declining moon. In this vein, ancient Israel's rise and fall parallel the phases of the moon. There were 15 generations from Abraham to Solomon, during which Israel rose to the zenith of its greatness. The decline began during Solomon's reign. There were 15 generations from them, including Solomon, to the reign of Zedekiah, when the first temple was destroyed. This corresponds to the 29-day cycle of the moon. There are two primary Hebrew words for moon. One of the Hebrew words for moon is Yarik, which is the Strong's number 3394. 
Yar is the same root that is found in Jordan, which in Hebrew is Yarden. So in Moon, Yarik, and in Jordan, Yarden, they both share the same root, Yar. And Yar means to descend. The Hebrew word for Moon, Yarik, is associated with descending. Another Hebrew word for Moon is Lebanah, the Strong's number 3842. Lebanah means white. Yarik is associated with the descending or the dark or the hidden aspect of the moon. Lebanah is associated with the ascending, the bright or the full aspect of the moon. Since the Davidic dynasty is likened to the moon, the Davidic dynasty is destined to fall, descend, which is associated with Yarik, and rise again, which is associated with Lebanah. The restored tabernacle of David is the reunification of the two houses of Israel, Ephraim and Judah. I am going to be reading from the Torah Anthology on the book of the Twelve Prophets, Volume 1, and commenting about Amos chapter 9, verse 11, which says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches, and I will raise up its ruins, and I will build it as the days of old. Amos speaks prophetically about the redemption. The redemption is the end of the exile of Jacob, which is the reunification of Ephraim and Judah. Continuing on in the Torah anthology on the Twelve Prophets, Volume 1, it says, God will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. This refers to the calamity of the kingdom splitting in two in the days of Jeroboam. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 13. As of then, and unto the time of Hosea, son of Eli, 2 Kings 17, the kingdom of the house of David was fallen. The scripture compares Jerusalem and the reigning dynasty of David to a tabernacle. David had been the monarch who shepherded the people of Israel. So the tabernacle or the sukkah of David had fallen. Yeshua, the Messiah, died on the tree to unite Ephraim and Judah. John chapter 10 verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John chapter 11 verses 50 through 52 nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. This spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for that nation. So Yeshua is dying for that nation, who's the good shepherd that's given his life for that nation. But in John 11:52 it says, and not for that nation only. So he's dying for two different nations. Who are these two nations? That he would gather together in one the children of God scattered abroad. When Messiah died in the tree who are the children of God who are scattered that the prophets say will be united and become one through the Messiah it's the two houses of Israel it's Ephraim and Judah Yeshua died to restore the tabernacle of David that had been fallen the restoration of the tabernacle of David is the coming together of both houses of Israel this is the understanding in Acts chapter 15 verses 13 through 16 and after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon has declared, that is, Peter, how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen, which is the restoration of both houses of Israel. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Now, in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, where it states from the King James that those from among the Gentiles are returning to build up the tabernacle of David, this is a reference to Ephraim who was judged in Hosea 1 that he would be assimilated into the nations. The King James says, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble them not which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. But if we look at the Greek word turned, which is the Strong's number 1994 in the Greek dictionary, the word also means return. We can see it translated as returned in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. For you were sheep going astray, but now you have returned under the shepherd and bishop of your soul. So this is speaking about the Gentiles who are returning to God, which is a reference to Ephraim scattered in the nations and those who are coming back with him from among the nations. Now let's look at the new moon service in traditional Judaism of the sanctification of the moon. The sanctification of the moon should not be confused with the Sanhedrin sanctification of the month. 
by which the court pronounced the appropriate day as the beginning of a new month. That proclamation was for the sole province of the court and affected the calendar. The sanctification of the moon, not the month, has no calendar significance. Now let's look at the traditional new moon blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, whose word created the heavens, whose breath created all their hosts, statutes and seasons he set for them, that they should not deviate from their assigned task. Joyously and gladly they do the will of their creator, whose work is dependable. To the moon he said that it should renew itself. The moon should renew itself as a crown of glory for those born from the womb. The moon should renew itself for those born from the womb who are also destined to renew themselves like it, the moon. And when they do, glorify their creator for the sake of his glorious kingdom. Blessed are you, Lord, who renews the months. Now, with that understanding that the moon renews itself, the moon is therefore born again each month. The restored in Yeshua the Messiah are born again to give glory to his kingdom. John chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and then verse 7 and 10, it is written, Yeshua answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Marvel not that I say unto you, Yeshua said, you must be born again. Then Yeshua says unto him, Are you a teacher in Israel and know not these things? What's he referring to? If he's a teacher in Israel, he's got to know about the new moon and the prayers of the new moon. He's got to know that the new moon is reborn and we have to be reborn like the moon. So he says, wait a second. This is what you teach. This is what you do every month. How is it that you don't know this principle or this concept? In the traditional new moon liturgy, the following is recited three times. Blessed is your mortar, blessed is your maker, blessed is your owner, blessed is your creator. And looking at the phrase in Hebrew, blessed is your mortar, the initials of these four titles of God spell Jacob. And the teaching regarding it, just as the moon is called the smaller luminary in Genesis 1.16 in relation to the sun, so Jacob is called the younger sun in Genesis chapter 27 verses 15 and verse 42. Because he was the younger of Rebekah's two sons. This verse alludes to Isaiah 43.1 as explained by Leviticus Rabbah 36, the Midrash, that God created the universe for the sake of Jacob and his offspring. And looking at the new moon liturgy in traditional Judaism, it says, David, king of Israel, is alive and enduring. This is recited three times. As noted above, the phases of the moon allude to the Davidic dynasty. Thus, we include this confident expression of faith that David's reign endures and will shine again. This verse was composed by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rosh Hashanah 25a. Once again, looking at the traditional new moon liturgy in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. First, it says, and it's quoted in the liturgy, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. The commentary on this verse, the voice of my beloved, the inclusion of these two verses is based on the Yelkut, which interprets them as an allusion to the Messiah. When the Messiah, my beloved, announces the month of the redemption, Israel will protest disbelievingly that there are so many obstacles in its path. The Messiah will reply that he will hurdle all the barriers like a gazelle leaping over the mountains. So what does the new moon teach us? Israel is likened to the moon. The Davidic dynasty is likened to the moon. The Davidic dynasty will rise and fall. It will be rebuilt and restored through Yeshua the Messiah, through his death on the tree, and when he rules during the Messianic era from Jerusalem. Just as the moon is born again each month, every believer in Yeshua the Messiah must be born again in him. The new moon is a festival of rejoicing. Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, it is written, Also in the day of your gladness, and in your solemn days, and in the beginning of your months. The new moon, the beginning of your months, is a time of gladness. You shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may 
be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, this is a very important point and issue that we need to have written in our minds what Rav Shaul says about the celebration of biblical holidays. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he says, We are not to judge others in how we attempt to celebrate the Sabbath, the new moon, and the annual festivals. Let no man judge you in meat or in drink or respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, which is the restored tabernacle of David in the Messianic era. That's how it's a shadow of things to come. We've shown how the new moon is a shadow of things to come, but the body or the substance of it speaks of the Messiah. The shofar is blown on the new moon. Psalm 81 verse 3 says, Blow the trumpet. In the Hebrew word is shofar. It's the Strong's number 7782. In the new moon. In the time appointed on our solemn feast day. New moon is celebrated. Taken after what David did with a festive meal. 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon was come, the king sat him down to eat meat. Here's the basic way how you celebrate the new moon. It's to be a time of rejoicing. We are not to judge others in how we celebrate the new moon. The new moon is to be celebrated by the blowing of a shofar or a trumpet. The new moon is to be celebrated with a festive meal. Okay, so this is going to conclude the teaching on the new moon. What we need to understand is that the declaration, the celebration of the new moon, because among other things, it's not only a biblical commandment, but it is among many people issues of controversy. The Torah said that these issues are going to be and should be resolved in Jerusalem. Historically, there was a court in Jerusalem that was referred to as the Sanhedrin, and they were governed and ruled by the biblical Pharisees, which Yeshua said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which means we should not unconditionally and unilaterally follow everything that the rabbis say if it violates the written scripture. We see in Acts chapter 15 that when there was an issue of Torah controversy that they did go to Jerusalem, but they inquired of the apostles and the elders, the believers in Yeshua the Messiah. They did not go to the Sanhedrin. So the new moon is celebrated with a festive meal blowing the shofar, and it's to be a time of rejoicing. Because there are issues of controversy regarding how you celebrate this, when you celebrate this, we need to keep in mind that Rav Shaul says that we're not to judge others in how we celebrate the new moon. In rabbinic Judaism, they set up an exile calendar. The calendar today is an exile calendar. This calendar will not be the calendar that is going to be the calendar of the Messianic era. Because it says in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 that Messiah will teach the Torah from Jerusalem and Deuteronomy 17 tells us in verses 8 through 11 that there's going to be matters of controversy in those days. Messiah's still got to have to make rulings on various things. Probably one of the things that he's going to have to make the definite ruling is when all of Israel will follow is going to be the new moon and the new moon celebration. The most important thing in the body of Messiah we need to understand is that we love the God of Israel for all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love the brethren. And while there are going to be disagreement on a whole variety of things, ultimately, we need to realize that the Bible does say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves, and that we should be brethren in the family. So that's the most important thing that we need to understand regarding the teaching of the new moon in the context of Rav Shaul saying we should not judge others and how we celebrate the new moon. So once again, I pray that this message has been helpful for you to understand what the new moon is, how you celebrate it, and the issues regarding it. I pray that we all will be blessed as we seek to follow the ways of the Messiah, walk as he walked in First John chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, 
Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.